That's kind of known as the Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew chapter five. And in that, we talked about that that verse that talks about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice. So righteousness um, has a lot to do with justice um, that we talk about. Justice um, can be um, where you kind of get uh, justice, like almost payback um, for something that happened to you. Um, But uh, oftentimes in scripture, what we see is justice is talking about um, everybody being taken care of. And specifically, um, a lot of times in the Old Testament, especially in um, kind of the Hebrew tradition, the if you wanted to say, is your society just? Is your um, neighborhood just? Is your community just? You would look at the most vulnerable people in your um, society. And at that time, the four most vulnerable people were the poor, the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. And so you see those four being grouped together often in scripture and in the prophets, um, in poetry, um, talking about how God cares for them and how um, and that we should care for them, right? And so if you're going to look and say, is this a just society? You look at the most vulnerable people in your society. And that might be a little bit different in our society today who are the vulnerable, but I think it certainly is going to be the poor and the immigrant. And so um, thinking about that in terms of our own neighborhood and how we view our neighborhood, um, is it a just neighborhood? you have to kind of consider the idea of housing and how people um, do the most vulnerable people in our neighborhood feel afraid that they are being taken advantage of. And oftentimes that has to do with housing. And so today we're going to focus on that. I'm very excited that we have a special guest um, today who is passionate. He is um, a fellow brother, um, um, he is a part of a church that we work with, up, Uptown um, Church here in our neighborhood. And he has worked um, especially with Jimmy on um, different things that um, Viva and the different churches that work together. And he's passionate about housing. And, um, and so we thought this was a great opportunity for him to come and kind of talk about what he knows, um, what he has been involved in, and how churches can kind of help be a part of um, bringing justice to our community in that um, in the area of housing. And so we're really thankful that he is here. Jimmy's going to ask him questions um, for him to answer. And he actually has something that he has to get to at noon. So we want to get started right away. Um, Let me pray real quickly, though. Lord, we thank you so much for our church. We thank you for our neighborhood. Lord, we want to be a people who hunger and thirst for justice. We want to be a people who care about the most vulnerable in our community as you do. So Lord, help us, um, give us ears to listen to your spirit and to George. And um, we pray this all in your name. Amen. Well, uh, thank you again, Wendy. And uh, thank you, George, for joining us. Um, uh, I'll, I'll jump right in. Um, so George, uh, let's start with an introduction. Can you uh, introduce yourself? 
Sure. Um, thanks, Jimmy um, and Wendy for having me. So my name is George Sarkissian. Um, so first and foremost, um, I go to Uptown Community Church. Um, that's probably a couple blocks away from where you guys meet physically um, on Fort Washington Avenue and 185th Street. Um, the at, at Uptown, I'm an elder there. We've been in the neighborhood for about 10 years. Love the church, love the neighborhood. Um, but professionally, I work for the New York City Council. Um, so I work for the land use division at the New York City Council. So obviously the council is the legislative branch of our city government. Um, at the land use division, I'm part of the technical staff that essentially advise council members um, when they have to vote on changes to how we use land um, in New York City. So these are these big neighborhood rezonings where we um, are changing zoning to maybe incentivize housing development, commercial development, um, whenever we cite schools, whenever we want, whenever there's a piece of um, city-owned property, like um, in Inwood, you know, there was the, the library that um, there was a proposal to change that into both affordable housing and a library. So these are the kind of projects that council members have to vote on. Um, and it's my job to kind of work with them to make sure they understand the projects, um, understand the changes that will happen if they approve the projects and figure out if the projects are actually a good fit for the neighborhood. And if they're not, what kind of changes um, could be required to um, make the projects or proposals um, a better fit. So that's who I am and what I do, Jimmy. Well, that, that's it's very interesting and exciting. Um, a, a lot of sort of our discussion of housing and uh, public policy advocacy will center around the history of the Nehemiah projects. Um, can, can you give us an overview of that um, of that uh, initiative? Sure. Um, so the the Nehemiah plan was a plan that was um, pulled together by a group of churches in East Brooklyn. Um, this was back in the late 70s and 80s. So 30 churches um, in the kind of East Brooklyn neighborhoods of Brownsville and East New York came together um, to form a new nonprofit organization um, called East Brooklyn Congregations, um, or EBC. And EBC is still around today. And um, the plan EBC um, pulled together was really um, focused on housing. Um, this was um, a neighborhood back in the late 70s and 80s that was falling apart, you know, suffering from urban decay. Um, and the plan was to rebuild the neighborhood, quite like, you know, Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem um, for some of the same reasons, you know, to provide kind of security and uh, peace and comfort, um, you know, um, to be surrounded by um, a space that was um, uh, protected. So they, 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 they formed this plan to build 5,000 units of affordable housing um, in East Brooklyn and 5,000 units of home homeowner house, uh, owner-occupied housing in East Brooklyn as a part of their rebuilding process. Um, in addition to opening up schools, um, securing money to invest in parks, um, the church was the catalyst to do all that. Um, and they pulled together a plan that they executed um, back in the late 1970s and 1980s. Thank you. And, and before sort of the Nehemiah plan was enacted, can you go into a little more depth about the context for what were the problems and in particular, what were some of the values that governed access to housing? Yeah, totally. Um, like to actually understand the Nehemiah plan and what it responded to, you really have to kind of understand the history of the city and that part of the city in particular. Um, like EBC was responding to urban decay of the 70s and 80s. Like it plagued neighborhoods, primarily neighborhoods of color. Um, and that didn't just happen. That wasn't just kind of a quirk of history. That was like the direct result of like government policies that created these um, um, these areas of blight, um, primarily in the first half of the 20th century. So essentially after like World War II, 
the Federal Housing Administration, they got into the business of guaranteeing home loans. Um, uh, so pardon me for the little bit of history, some of you already know it, um, but it's important to kind of understand what the Nehemiah Plan was responding to. So the Federal Housing Administration started guaranteeing home loans, but they only guaranteed them in certain neighborhoods. They only guaranteed them in neighborhoods where there was low risk, and they wouldn't guarantee them in neighborhoods that were high risk. Um, so obviously the high risk neighborhoods um, they, they actually shaded in red. And that's where you get kind of the term redlining. They graded neighborhoods, A, B, C, D. So the D neighborhoods were the neighborhoods that were redlined. And these were essentially neighborhoods of color that they kind of restricted or prohibited um, from uh, prohibited loans going into those neighborhoods. And they directed loans into white neighborhoods um, in the city and the metropolitan area. Um, and and th this was important because they were essentially incentivizing home ownership. They made home ownership cheaper, you know. So when you got your loans from the bank, the bank, the, the loans would be cheaper. And so those loans went to neighborhoods like Levittown um, in the suburbs. This was like the first manufactured, um, the first manufactured suburb in Long Island. And not only to, did the investment get directed to places, white neighborhoods like Levittown, um, the federal government, the FHA restricted resale of those homes to white only um, um, owners. So there was literally something on your um, deed, a, a covenant on your deed that said you could not resell these homes in Levittown to non-white owners. So the federal government was really in this business of like directing investment to white neighborhoods and restricting it from going into neighborhoods of color. And, you know, it's, and it wasn't just in the suburbs, like neighborhoods like Stytown, like we all drive by Stytown, we know Stytown in lower Manhattan. Well, Stytown was a white only community at first, the developer only um, rented to white residents. And when a court proceeding, when they when when, when someone filed, filed a lawsuit against the developer, um, to make it an integrated development, the courts in 1949 said, yes, actually, Stytown could continue to re, um, rent to just white residents. So the, the, the federal government has really been in the business of um, directing investment um, to certain neighborhoods in the city and in the metropolitan area. And investment didn't go into other neighborhoods like Brownsville, like East New York. So they didn't get that kind of investment. And those neighborhoods literally started falling apart. You know, when, when you don't get the investment, you know, when you don't have homeowners that fight for things like good schools and nice parks, neighborhoods fall apart, you know. And that's what happened in the 70s and 80s um, in East New York and in Brownsville. And, you know, then coupled with like slum clearance where the federal government came in and knocked over all these buildings that were um, too dangerous to be occupied. Like it left folks in Brownsville and, and, and East New York with very few housing options. They didn't have many choices. And the choices they had were just like, you know, unsafe um, homes. So that's what that's what ECB kind of that's the that, that's that's what ECB the gap ECB filled you know they said that well this was just wasn't right you know they 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 advocated for and came up with a plan to develop housing that was safe and secure um, and um, yeah that's that's what they responded to Jimmy thank you and and you see in that history a very clear value that justice is doled out based on who you are in particular how who you are or, or what who you are implies about your worth as a community and as a people. And I would love it if you can contrast what are some of the kingdom values that should govern how we understand access to housing. Totally, totally. Yeah, housing access, like, you know, before I answer the question, just a little more context, housing access 
in the 70s and 80s was a bit of a different issue than housing access today. You know, it's a little bit different of a problem. Then in the 70s and 80s, it was like an issue of disinvestment. These neighborhoods were falling apart. Homes and buildings were falling apart. There was no safe place to live. And today it's kind of like the opposite problem. Like the pre-pandemic housing problem was like overinvestment. Some of these historically poor neighborhoods of color um, experienced a lot of development over the last 20 years, a lot of high-end luxury development in neighborhoods like, you know, Williamsburg and Bushwick and Bed-Stuy and Harlem. Um, so unfortunately, the housing that was being built in these neighborhoods was just not affordable. So fo folks couldn't access housing because of affordability now. So in, back then, it was kind of an issue of safety and security. Uh, now it's an issue of affordability. But at the heart of it, to answer your question, Jimmy, um, is, is a need to have that kind of access. And I think this is what, you know, Jesus was talking about in Matthew 25, when he identified with the stranger and asked us, you know, who's welcoming in the stranger, you know, and this is like Jesus, you know, talking about the final days of who's entering into his kingdom. Well, the folks entering into his kingdom were folks that welcomed in the stranger and, and the stranger at that time, when Jesus was talking was somebody that, you know, didn't have a home might be in a different foreign place. Um, and was, and it was an issue of safety and security. You couldn't just be wandering the the roads and um, these were like dangerous places and you needed a place to stay. And Jesus essentially identified with that stranger and said, whoever lets that stranger in, lets me in, you know? Um, and that's because the stranger needed the security that comes with a home, needed like the heat and warmth that comes with a home, a roof over your head so you, you're, you're, you don't get wet and you're not exposed to the elements, everything like we take for granted now, you know, in New York. But that's what, that's what Jesus was saying, let the stranger in, welcome the stranger. Hebrews 13 says the same thing, right? It commands us to show hospitality to the stranger. Essentially tells us like when you're, when you're taking in a stranger, it's like you're taking in an angel, you know? So th again, these are all people, um, um, you know, in God's kingdom that had no place to stay. And I think, I think that's what, you know, Christ is calling us to do is make sure everybody has a home for themselves. Make sure everybody has that peace and security and comfort that we crave as human beings, you know? So, you know, it, it's something that we all kind of know and recognize and can not have nod our head to and kind of agree to, but like, what do we do with that information, right? Like, how should we be spending our time? And Philippians 2 verses 3 through 4 instructs us to kind of count others more significant than ourselves, specifically looking out for the interests of others. So that's like very active language, you know, like, you know, you, you can't, you can't walk by somebody in a subway car who's in a subway car because he or she has no place to live, but needs to be warm. So they're in that subway car without a bit of your heart breaking, you know, and, you know, my wife's a school teacher and um, she teaches kids who have no homes, you know, like they're living in shelter and they're being taught, you know, and they're being taught in kind of like this half remote world where like there's horrible Wi-Fi in these like homeless shelters. Um, one kid is moving from a shelter that's near her school to a shelter in Brooklyn for six weeks because there's something wrong with her shelter here and nearby here in Hamilton Heights. And so now that kid's going to be going to school full-time remote in a shelter that has horrible Wi-Fi, you know? So like, it's hard to kind of like hear those type of stories with about a bit of your heart breaking if you count others more significant than yourselves, like Hebrews 2 instructs us to. So I think we have to be kind of in the business of advocating um, for housing, housing access um, in this city as, as the church. And I know that can be kind of like daunting and overwhelming. We'll probably talk about that a little later in the interview, but there's ways to do it that are tangible. Thank you. And, and you see the contrast very clearly, like in, in the world, 
the, the values that govern access to housing are people that look like you and people that look like people that are in power. And in, in Jesus' kingdom, he almost ascribes this divine self-worth to the least of these and sort of essentially flips the narrative on sort of what people we should sort of uphold and sort of be most um, concerned of. Um, zooming in into sort of some of the tactile sort of uh, questions, what were some of the, the strategies that the church deployed to close the gap and how did they, which resources did they leverage? Sure. Yeah. So getting back to the, e, um, the East Brooklyn congregation story, the Nehemiah um, plan story. Um, so the, the churches then obviously in Brooklyn in the 1970s and 80s, the res- they didn't have like monetary resources, right? Like they, they didn't have like financial resources to leverage, but the resources they had were people, you know, they're, they were, you know, citizens of, you know, God's kingdom. Um, and, you know, as we're called to do in Jeremiah 29, when we're called to seek the peace and prosperity of the city we live in, um, they aim to participate in civic life um, in a way that leveraged um, the number of folks that they had in those churches. So they were all voters, you know, and voters have power, you know, in our system of government. Um, so they came together, they built a coalition of 30 churches um, and those churches identified a goal or a need, which was to develop housing that was safe and secure. Um, and they developed a very clear goal and need and articulated that goal and need clearly. Um, and then they developed partnerships, you know, that were key to kind of executing on those goals. They developed a partnership with a developer, um, a housing developer, because the church doesn't build housing, obviously, but developers do, you know, and they found one that was like mission aligned because not all developers, you know, are trying to make a buck. Some developers have, you know, missions and they're nonprofits. So they formed a relationship with a developer, you know, so they had this kind of like organization, people, voters, and a, a, a kind of clearly articulated goal and partnerships to leverage. Um, and then they went to the public sector. They went to Mayor Ed Koch at the time and, um, you know, presented the idea, presented the um, the goal, presented the partnerships that they had to kind of execute on that goal. And what they needed from the mayor at the time was the land, you know. So as a result of some of the urban decay of the 70s and 80s, landlords abandoned all these properties and the city demolished these buildings. They had these huge, huge, big tracts of land, empty land. And, you know, the ECB, EBC folks um, told the mayor that they needed that land to start rebuilding the neighborhood. And they also needed capital from the city to finance the construction. And that's what they did. You know, they pushed and pushed. And as, as people of God organized and focused, um, they secured the resources they need, needed to kind of like fill that gap. That's very interesting. And, and could you uh, describe sort of the, the time horizon over which this occurred? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it occurred primarily in the 80s and 90s. Um, so it wasn't kind of like a, you know, hey, we sat down, had one meeting with the mayor and boom, we're done. You know, it wasn't one of those things. And it happened bit by bit, you know, because, you know, the resources needed to finance the development of that housing you know, it's, it's not all just there in one fiscal year. It's there over several fiscal years, you know. So it, t- it took a kind of sustained effort of, you know, collaboration and lobbying and advocacy to get to 5,000 units, you know, over several years. But if you drive around, you know, Bushwick, not Bushwick, sorry, Brownsville and East New York right now, you'll see these like, you know, like row houses, essentially, um, kind of a modern day take on row houses. They're, they're one or two family homes and, you know, everybody owns them and they have their own little backyard and they have their own little driveway 
and you know the neighborhood's better for it. And, and that sort of time horizon and the resources that it leverage really highlight some important principles that we talk about in terms of community development. One, in terms of not having a deficit mentality and mm. sort of seeing that you have this immense resource of people and connections. And two, being present and patient and sort of operating over long time horizons to move these things along. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see that at play and see the, the sheer impact of um, exercising those values as well. Um, now, uh, zooming into our neighborhood, um, you are also involved in a lot of uh, public policy advocacy initiatives in Uptown. Could you please describe them? Sure. You know, as, as Wendy mentioned, you know, we've been working with other churches, including Everyday Christian Church, um, to collaborate over the years. Um, as Wendy also mentioned, you know, we have um, formed a nonprofit, um, our church and a couple other churches named Viva Uptown, that we've collaborated with um, Everyday Christian Church um, through on a couple occasions. And Viva really kind of focuses on mentoring young people. So we've set up a relationship with a couple schools um, and we connect our, um, our congregants to um, young people who need mentoring. So they just form relationships, you know, kind of come alongside some of the young people and live with them um, and kind of go through their struggles with them. In addition to that, we've done um, a few food drives and, you know, just like I'm sure you guys do, there's, you know, your, your neighborhood cleanups here and there that we do, but really kind of, we've gotten a lot more active um, since the death of George Floyd, you know, um, a few months ago, um, our church, along with your church and a number of other churches pulled together um, to start working on racial justice issues. Um, and, um, you know, earlier this summer, we worked together and collaborated and pulled together and planned and executed on a protest. We were marching around Washington Heights um, and Inwood and making sure the neighborhood got, knew that God wasn't, um, got, that God felt the absence of justice too, and that he wants a just world um, to make sure that, you know, the neighborhood knew racial justice was something that was important to our Lord as well. Um, and since then, we've continued to kind of work together and partner up on kind of like the follow-up, you know, now that we've kind of like done the protest, now what? And, you know, I know you, Jimmy, have been working with um, Al from our church and pulling together young people um, to talk to the police, uh, young people from the neighborhood talk to the police um, to begin a dialogue there, you know, on how to better understand each other. I know I just, I stumbled upon them in, in Bennett Park this past Friday and saw the circle of folks um, talking together and it was really encouraging. And I'm sure, I think Jimmy, you're going to talk a little more about it later on in the service. Um, but we've also been talking about actively getting involved in public policy and advocating for public policy and um, pushing government in the right direction too. Thank you. And, and that, that, that circle was, uh, I'll, I'll talk about it briefly, um, but it, it was very encouraging and it was very candid conversation and sort of balanced conversation. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about some of the next steps that you have for the public policy advocacy in particular how you're leading Uptown Community Church in that effort. Yeah, totally. Um, so, you know, I think when we started talking about what the world after that 
summer march looks like um where we chanted like we are the church and we want justice we are the church and we want peace we are the church and we want change like our church started talking about like what does that change look like like we we marched in the neighborhood we had our righteous anger and our passion for protest and we we we, we said things need to change and like you know what are the real practical changes that we actually need to make to bring God's justice to our community, you know, to really do it in kind of a tangible way for our black and brown brothers and sisters. Um, so, you know, as you saw, as like we talked about a little earlier, you know, government was really kind of at the core of um, creating part of the problem in New York City and other cities across the country, you know, in, in creating urban decay and, and segregation. So government really has to be part of the solution here and policy changes, um, you know, from, from the government's perspective can include new laws. Like we've seen the potential for new laws to make a real impact in people's life. Um, you know, the civil rights era kind of showed us that. Um, new investments, you know, budgets are passed every year and there's money in those budgets for things like new schools, um, new community centers, new housing, you know, and like government practices, policies, like how the NYPD operates, you know, how our housing agencies operate. These are all the function of government choices, you know, and, you know, we obviously like the lesson we learned from, um, you know, the Nehemiah plan is that when communities of people get together and get organized and articulate needs, government responds, you know, um, not always, you know, but often um, they respond. And, you know, we need to just ask ourselves, like, and this is what we've been asking ourselves at Uptown is like, are we willing to get involved again? Like, are we willing to do what the folks in East Brooklyn did um, several years ago um, and get involved again. And if we are, what do we think God cares about? What are the issues that we wanna tackle? Um, you know, the fight for racial justice, you know, isn't just a fight about reforming the police and criminal justice, although it's certainly that, you know, it's certainly fighting for criminal justice reform and we should do that, but we're focusing on that because that's what we see, right? We saw that in these videos of people being murdered, you know? Um, and we want to kind of change the criminal justice system um, because of that. And th but there's so much that goes unseen to some of us <clears throat> um, that also, you know, is, is you know, th there are also justice issues screaming for attention. You know, there are racial disparities in public education, you know, that are really stark. There are racial disparities in health and economic outcomes. And, you know, those racial disparities, the health and economic outcomes in particular, became really obvious through COVID-19, right? The pandemic just like blew open those fault lines. Um, so the health disparities, you know, black and brown um, communities have higher rates of diabetes, asthma, um, higher rates of hypertension and heart attacks. And those are all like the comorbidities that um, um, have led to the death, the disproportionate death of African-American and Latinos because of COVID-19. And economic insecurity, right? Like African Americans and Latinos um, are more likely to have uh, those retail and service jobs that require people to work in person. Whereas, you know, some of us get to, including myself, get to log on to work every morning on my laptop at home. And I have that kind of job security. Um, but many people don't, you know. And obviously, we talked about housing. There's a bunch of different racial disparities that that are screaming for attention. You know, this, this, like when Wendy was talking about justice and an unjust system, this is it, you know, there's plenty of it. Um, just to provide like some concrete examples, just to maybe put a little more, um, to, to, to shine a spotlight on it a little more. Like if you compare the neighborhoods of like Brownsville to Tribeca, um, it becomes super clear, right? In Brownsville, about 24% 
of elementary school students are passing, right? Are at grade level. So that means like 76% of young people in Brownsville are failing, you know? And like, that's the public sector providing or failing to provide an education for these young people and not being critical of teachers who are trying hard and school administrators are trying hard, you know, we elect people to government um, to try to fix these problems. And there are big ideas out there that can do it, you know? Um, and in Tribeca, 85% of kids pass, you know? So three times as many kids pass school in Tribeca as they do in Brownsville. And that's not a just world. That's not the kind of upside down world that Jimmy was talking about, the upside down kingdom that God talks about where we, where we prioritize the most vulnerable. That's not it, you know? Um, in Brownsville, the, lot, the average life expectancy is 75 years. Um, in, in Tribeca, it's 86. So you get to live a whole decade more if you grow up in Tribeca, you know? So this notion of like destiny, um, geography is destiny is, is really true. Where you grow up really determines a lot of your life outcomes. So, you know, to the extent um, we want to get involved again, um, and this is something that Uptown has now been talking about and I've talked about with other churches and we're talking about it here today, you know, we can start to tackle some of these issues. Um, we can start to make progress on some of these issues. And if we get organized, I, I, I'm telling you, elected officials will come to us. That, that's, that's great and it's inspiring. And it's very much aligned with what we value here. We're, we're starting to read about racial justice and we have to work with the youth police dialogue, but we're also very passionate about um, moving into the space of public policy advocacy. And so, would love if you can talk about what are some of the next steps that we can take as a church, including getting plugged into sort of the multi-church initiatives in our neighborhood around public policy advocacy. Yeah, no, good question. You know, like we're having this same conversation in our church, you know, like, um, you know, we, it, it, it's still something that we're doing with um, Covenant Church of the Heights, um, a couple other churches that we're starting to talk to. And I think the first question, you know, we all have to ask ourselves is like, do we want to get involved? You know, like, is this something that we want to get active on, you know? And if the answer is yes, then we have to ask ourselves, like, what are the policy issues that we want to advocate for? Like, what, what, what does scripture um, tell us here? What, what, what values of the kingdom um, break our heart? You know, what values of the kingdom lead us forward? Um, and and it, you, you could answer that question in a couple of different ways, right? You can take kind of a deeper dive um, into the data, talk to experts just to better understand these issues. You know, we don't fully kind of understand all the disparities. We don't fully understand, you know, um, the lack of justice in our city. And we, we can learn, you know, a little more. And I think we, including myself, right? We could all learn a little more about, you know, the, the racial disparities that exist, talk to experts that understand them and just better understand what the need actually is. Um, and we could also ask ourselves, like, what are we good at? You know, like, what do we already do, you know, that we can um, kind of build upon, you know, um, what are the relationships we already have with stakeholders that understand these issue areas? Um, yeah. So I guess like first step one is to like understand like what you want to advocate for. What are the needs that we need to, as a body of churches, articulate to our government folks? And like, once we know what we want to advocate for, we have to figure out who we should be partnering with. You know, we could really focus on this upper part of Manhattan um, and collaborate with churches here that share that same kind of um, 
um, you know, burden and, and, and have the same kind of values and want to pursue this type of work. Um, and we could really focus on kind of like this unit of geography, you know, and in addition to that, you know, and, and, you know, we could also work with churches in other parts of the city in Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, you know, that have a similar vision, similar set of values, but we have to, you know, the second question is like, who do we want to work with and how do we build those bridges? And then, um, you know, once we have kind of a, a set of issues that we want to work on that we fully understand and can kind of lift up as needs um, in God's kingdom, and we have a set of churches that are ready to work with us together and form a coalition, then we need to start meeting with elected officials, you know. And these, you know, these are folks like sometimes like one thinks about, you know, politics and so am I going to vote for this person? Or am I going to vote for that person? It's, it's not that We're, we have to meet with elected officials because they are the folks that hold these levers of government. You know, they're the folks that pass laws, uh, make decisions on investments, change government practices. <clears throat> and so we have to kind of meet with these folks um, and we can meet with them kind of on a northern Manhattan, you know, kind of focus or a citywide focus. But I'm telling you, these folks take these meetings all the time. Yeah. I'm telling you, as like a person who's worked on the other end of this, and I know Jimmy's done that some of that work too. Um, when a group of people that's very organized with a strong coalition have kind of reasonably articulated goals and needs, have strong partnerships, they come knocking. You answer those calls. You know, you sit down, you have those meetings. You know, and you have to work with those folks, particularly to Jimmy's point, when they're persistent and they're patient. And the the um, the needs don't go away, and they continue to be articulated over and over again. That's when change happens. Like that's when change really happens. And there are big ideas out there, you know. Like as we get to better understand need and start to articulate some of that need through our coalition, um, some of these big ideas can can make change actually happen, you know, in, in whatever issue area we care about. Um, and, you know, there are elected officials in 2021 that are running for office and they should meet with us. They should know what we care about in northern Manhattan. They should know about what God's kingdom should look like and how we think um, we need to be involved in making that happen. Um, and, you know, like if we do this right and not, not just kind of emphasize this point again, but if we do this right and we build a coalition and we're patient and we establish ourselves, elected officials will start coming to us. You know, like the folks that control government, pass laws, make investments, change practices, they'll start coming to us. It's what happens with EBC still now in East Brooklyn. Like there's still a strong organization, you know, and if you want to do anything in East Brooklyn, open up a new program, build some housing, whatever it is, you go to EBC first. You, you tell them, hey, we've got this plan. What do you think? You know, and EBC representing kind of this coalition of churches in God's kingdom opines and they say, no, 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 we need a little more of this or that could work, you know? Um, and, you know, that's what we could be here in upper Manhattan. That's exciting. It's, 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 I feel like it's not frequent. You see a very clear vision and very tangible vision for how to um, bring more of God's kingdom to bear in the world and to do it with love, with humility, and but with the authority that comes behind God's kingdom values. So um, I think everyone here has been sort of deeply blessed <laughs> hearing you talk, and, um, and we're just really excited, and we're looking forward to working uh, with you in, and with Uptown in the future. Um, I'm going to close in prayer. Um, I'm going to do something, I guess, a little impromptu, and that the prayer will involve um, some moments of silence,
to create space for us to sort of engage with God. Um, so it's going to be sort of a, a bit impromptu, so if you can bear with me, but I just <laughs> thought about it. So um, l- let me start. <clears throat> Father God, first and foremost, we sort of step back and acknowledge you and acknowledge this all comes from you. You're the source of justice. You're a source of peace. You're a source of self-worth. You're a source of dignity. Nothing pure, nothing good, nothing right happens without you initiating it. Um, and we thank you and we praise you, Lord. And we particular sort of acknowledge that, Jesus, when you entered this world, you entered a very broken and sort of terrifying world. Um, the Roman Empire was gruesome and you, you bared it all for us, Lord, and you sort of taught us what love looks like. You taught us what valuing the vulnerable looks like, Lord. And Lord, the movement you started there changed the world. Many norms, international norms about human rights and, and justice come out of some of the, 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 the values you've poured into the world and you radically transformed how we think about um, justice and human rights and sort of um, caring for the most vulnerable Lord. And so we want to first and foremost acknowledge that this is all comes from you and you're the source of it all and you will empower it all. And it's your hands that's forming the world and changing the world so that it looks more like your kingdom. Um, we also thank you for the work that you've done in George, both the work you've done in his professional life and in his personal life and his church. And we thank you that um, you brought him to this place where he has the knowledge, heart, and passion to really sort of educate us on how we can sort of actualize your kingdom values and the, the, the values that you've placed in our hearts and that you speak to us every time we open your scriptures, Lord. Um, we'd like to ask, Lord, that first and foremost, that you touch our hearts so that we prioritize your values above everything else, because that's that's where it starts, sort of this, this sort of reverence towards you, Lord. So I'd like to pause for a few minutes and invite my brothers and sisters to turn to God and just praise and uphold God and uphold his values. Lord, we praise you. We declare that there's none like you, Lord, that you're, you're above all else and your values sort of transcend all else, Lord. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we haven't always sort of had this reverence towards your values and sort of we haven't always allowed our hearts to be broken uh, for the injustice around us, Lord. And, and we ask that you, you, you break our hearts, Lord, and you sort of open our eyes to the injustice in our community, Lord. And, and I ask for my brothers and sisters for, to pause for a few seconds to meditate on the injustice in our world and sort of ask God to break your heart for the injustice in our community.
Finally, Lord, we know that you are already at work. We know that you've already blessed us with the people and the relationships where we can get started towards your work, Lord. And we just thank you and praise you for, we know and we have faith that five, 10 years from now, we'll be able to look back and see the work that you're doing, that you have done and, and see sort of the ways you've transformed our community. And so we declare that faith, Lord, and, and we sort of um, acknowledge that we will have the victory in this space and that we will um, move our neighborhood towards uh, justice, Lord. Um, and, and I ask, Lord, that you open our eyes to the work that you're already doing. Um, open our eyes to the assets and the people that you've placed in our community, Lord. Um, in particular, I ask um, my brothers and sisters here to think on some of the skills and the relationships and the assets that the Lord has given you and to meditate on sort of how that can be put to work towards justice in our community. Lord, we thank you. Um, we pray that you sustain us through this work, allow us to have balance, allow us to have peace, allow us to have Sabbath, but also allow us to be on fire for your justice. Um, in your name we pray, amen. Amen.